I want to give a special welcome to our church family today. It's wonderful to be gathered together in worship. For those who are joining us from their homes or other places, we welcome you as well. May God bless you today as we meet with him together. We're going to be continuing on our journey that we started a few weeks ago that we've called the Gospel and Race. Uh, a few weeks back, we talked about the shalom of God being conspicuously absent in our world today, that wholeness and peace. We spoke a few weeks ago about the uh, weeping with those who weep in our message on lament, and last week, taking a humble posture of empathy and compassion, we spoke about, we spoke about repentance. And I want to remind you as we get ready to get into God's Word together that we have a unique calling as a church. We are uniquely equipped to deal with sin. And I'm thankful that we have a human heart specialist who is not intimidated by our self-righteousness or disgusted by our failures. We are uniquely commissioned to reach our world. We are uniquely promised a glorious future. So if you may remember when we started this series, I, I shared these words with you, that Jesus Christ, who is, was God in the flesh, lived on this earth, but he did not look like many of us here. Though he was racially different than me, his mercy and grace have been extended to people like me and beyond. This is where we take up the cry of imago dei, that each person has the intrinsic dignity and worth of being made in the image of God. Jesus is right now gathering to himself people in worship from every corner of this world. He has redeemed a people that are multilingual and multicultural and multiracial. This group is given a glorious promised future. And as we think about this today, our message is entitled The Ministry of Reconciliation, coming from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn over there and uh, follow along with us. We're going to be picking up beginning in verse 17 today, a passage of Scripture that we've actually referenced many times. This has been a, a bit of a life passage for me, and I think it's a very important one for us. Every time I read through it, though, I feel as though the Lord reveals, as He often does, some, some new and beautiful nuances in Scripture. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, read with me, we'll jump right into it today, verses 17 and following. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And if you want to say amen to that this morning, go ahead and say amen to that. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we have already confessed to you in worship, we need you. 
Our world is in need of you. And yet, Lord, you have called your church with a special calling to be ministers of your gospel, that you are reconciling your, the, the world to yourself, and you have called us to play a part in that. So may we embrace that calling today in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So in these last weeks that we have spent discussing the subject of the gospel and race, I will tell you that I have become more convinced now than ever before that we are out of our depth. The issues are too complex. The pain runs too deep for a mere human solution. We need divine intervention. I was revisiting a, a story that I was familiar with but was becoming sort of newly acquainted with it with some new details this week. In 2015, there was a shooting by a man by the name of Dylan Roof at a predominantly black church in Charleston, South Carolina. Many of you probably remember reading those headlines. Took the lives of nine believers, including Myra Thompson, who was the pastor's wife there at that church. Reverend Anthony Thompson, the pastor, was attending the bond hearing for his wife's killer just two days later. He didn't want to be there. In fact, he said pretty specifically he was not going to go, but then his kids wanted to go, and he didn't want them to go alone. And so he said, listen, we can go, but we're not in a position to say anything. We're not making statements to the press. We're not going to talk to anybody, but if you need to be there, we'll, we will go. And so he went reluctantly. And he sat with his head in his hands, and he began, uh, as he was just being quiet, uh, he distinctly heard the voice of the Lord saying to him, I need you to say something. And he said, it reminded me of my call to ministry years ago. It was that distinct. I heard the Lord speaking to me. He didn't know what he was going to speak, and so the Lord said, I'm going to give you the words, but I need you to get up when the time came. And so he did. And so the man stood up, and he spoke to Dylan this person who had killed his, his wife, and he said, Dylan, son, I forgive you. My family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, to repent and confess, give your life to the one who matters most, give your life to Jesus Christ so that he can change it and can change your ways. I want you to know that no matter what happens to you, you will be okay if you are in his hands. Do that and you will be better off than you are right now. It was a remarkable act of forgiveness that people are still talking about to this day and trying to make sense of how a person could actually say those words who had take, to someone who had taken so much from them. But I share that with you because two things happened in that moment. The first is that people reported that there was a tangible shift in the spiritual climate over that region. One person described it as though an immense weight was suddenly lifting. And it reminds me that we wrestle not against flesh and blood when we wade into the area of racial reconciliation and what the gospel has to say about that. We are not wrestling as one person against another. So there was a tangible shift in the spiritual climate in that moment of forgiveness. But Pastor Thompson's heart was impacted as well. This is what he said. He said, after I said those words, I experienced God's love, God's peace, 
perhaps for the first time I knew and understood what it meant and felt like to experience the peace of God which passes all understanding. He's referencing Philippians 4, 7. He said, God freed, God's love freed my heart and soul and body of the burden of bitterness and anger. God healed me from the inside out. He took away all of my burdens and he granted me his peace. I share that story with you this morning because I can think of no better example of costly and humble obedience ushering in the restoring power of God. And that is precisely what we are going after when we speak about a subject so lofty as the gospel and race. Our world needs the healing power of God. And God calls the church with this sort of intimidating and yet special call to be ministers of reconciliation, as we read in our scripture today. And that's what we're going to unpack in just a moment. Now, we said in the beginning of this series that we're not going to get everything right. And I'm sure we haven't. There's been things that maybe we've said that we shouldn't have said. We maybe should have said some things that we haven't said. We've possibly said some things poorly or incompletely. But we would rather that be true than for us to say nothing at all. We want to be engaged in something so immense and important as racial reconciliation in our world. Uh, some people have asked us about some of the resources that we have gone through, and there have been many. And so we've actually compiled, Chad and I, a, a, a web page that I'll send out in our uh, email that goes out tomorrow so that you can see some of the further readings, opportunities for further dialogue. And specifically, we're going to include in there uh, an opportunity for you to share some of your feedback, the questions that you're wrestling with, the things that are kind of on your heart. And I do that realizing that there's some risk involved because some people may just take that opportunity to sort of tee off on their pet peeve or whatever. And that's actually okay. I'd love to hear from you. What are the questions that you are wrestling with so that we can keep some meaningful dialogue moving forward? So we'll keep you abreast of that opportunity uh, here. I think that's going live uh, today. When I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're just going to walk through this and, and pull right from Scripture, from God's heart to us, three things that I think are very important for us if we are going to engage well, especially moving forward in the realm of the gospel and race. The first thing that I see is what I would call a celebration of change. A celebration of change. We're also going to look at a dependence on Christ's work and a mission to fulfill. But let's start with this celebration of change. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, the passage begins, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Here we have Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Corinth was known for all kinds of old nature, old worldly issues. But his message is clear that being in Christ means there is a new nature that is present. We don't think the way that we used to. We don't act the way that we used to. Our life in Christ brings us new priorities. It brings us new perspective. It brings us a new sense of identity. Now I suspect that all of us who are in Christ have probably come in with some level of our own Corinthian mess. And we are still growing up into the new creation identity that Christ has imparted to us. 
In fact, I, I would say it this way. The Christian life was not intended to be a static experience, but a dynamic, growing experience. And I have learned that from many of my older generation friends here at this church who are still seeking, still learning, still growing into that new creation identity, even into their 70s and 80s and 90s and perhaps beyond. New creation living. I think this is so vitally important for us to embrace as a church because you're not going to get this from the world. In fact, Paul prefaces this verse with a few uh, realities that I think are really important. If you back up to verse 15, he says this very specifically, we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for the glory of Christ now. Then in verse 16, he says something else, I think equally germane to this discussion. He says, we don't regard one another according to the flesh anymore. We used to. We used to think a certain way. We used to have certain habits. We used to have certain defaults. But now we don't do that anymore. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We don't regard one another according to the flesh anymore. Now, church, I'm highlighting this this morning because I think embedded in it is such a vital truth for us to embrace. It kind of sounds like this. We don't grow if we can't change And we can't change if we aren't challenged. And I don't think we can be challenged if we don't disagree. That's what makes a loaded subject like this so challenging but also important. Let me say it to you this way. Having processed dozens of books and articles, interviews, conversations in preparation for these messages... God has been stirring in my own heart. I've encountered a lot of good answers to really hard questions. I've heard experiences from people that I didn't share. I didn't experience them myself, but it was valuable for me to listen and to understand a different perspective. I've agreed with people's conclusions, and I've disagreed with people's conclusions. And I'm convinced that is a part of this journey. If that is a part of this journey, the question actually becomes very important. Can the church lean into its new creation identity, that identity that the world doesn't have? Can the church lean into that new creation identity in Christ so that we can be part of the reconciling ministry of God in this world? I want to ask you to consider this concept of growth through disagreement and yet reorienting around the purposes of Christ. Paul actually says in a few different places, but one that catches my attention is Philippians 3. I love this passage of scripture where he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And then he says this little caveat. He says, and if in anything you think otherwise, well, God will reveal that to you. You see what Paul is doing to the, to the young church there in Philippi? He's saying, if we make it our goal to go after the things of God, to go after the person of Christ, to make him our lofty goal, our first priority, we are going to find that in many other areas we have not yet come to agreement, and yet that's okay. He basically says, let God work that out in you. Now, I'm sharing this with us today because, church, I believe we have a tendency to get so uptight about being right 
We get so uptight about being right. Who would have thought two years ago that seemingly innocuous things like mask wearing would become deeply divisive issues in our country and in our world and sometimes even in our churches or in our families? Who would have thought that something so simple as whether or not you took a vaccine or which vaccine you took or whatever would become something that would be tearing us apart? I'm reminded of the great early church father that said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, I was chewing on this idea, and I said to my wife this last week, I said, so, you know how we disagree in marriage, right? I mean, we disagree, right? And she said, honey, we don't, we don't disagree. And I said, well, no, no, I mean, we sometimes disagree. And she said, I don't think that we do. And I was like, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure that we do. And then we got in a big fight, and it was really weird. <laughs> we actually agree that we disagree in marriage. Amy actually said, yeah, tell the church. Let them know. Our marriage isn't always as pristine as we would like it to be. We, you know, and here's the thing that we do. I, I, I sort of, I'm the diplomat. And so I said, well, yeah, because sometimes we just don't fully understand what the other person is saying, right? And she said, yeah, and sometimes we do fully understand what the other person is saying, and we just don't agree. And I agreed. That has been a part of our experience, and yet there's a reason that we don't give up on each other in that situation or whatever special relationship you would think about in your life. You know, there's a reason that you don't give up on that because you've said, I'm prioritizing this thing. There's something good that is happening here. There's something we are called to that transcends the difficulties that we would work through to preserve it. To disagree and stay committed to the other is actually a very beautiful thing. It's not easy but it's beautiful, and I think it's a big part of how we grow. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but I think it's important for us as a church just to wrestle with this. The point being, you cannot engage in a difficult, painful, generational issue like race or racial reconciliation without encountering some disagreement. So let's model Christ-like humility. Why? Because we can because that is part of the new identity that we are called for and called to. Second point I'd like us to look at today is a dependence on the work of Christ that is illustrated so beautifully in this uh, passage. So we read in verse 17 that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, old is gone, the new has come. And then Paul says, all of this is from God. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, here's the beautiful truth that begins to emerge. The more I let my heart sort of soak in this space of what Christ has done for you and what Christ has done for me and what Christ has done for people who don't have the same life and experience as I have had, here's the beautiful thing that starts to happen. Christ's work elevates humility. Christ's work elevates gratitude while simultaneously extracting our sense of self 
righteousness. Let me say that to you again. Christ's work elevates humility. Christ's work elevates gratitude while simultaneously extracting our sense of self-righteousness. Let me encourage you to lean into independence on Christ's work. Now, last week, Pastor Chad was preaching on the theme of repentance, and I fully support the message that he brought to us. I want to tell you that as he was addressing the question of privilege, I've had to do some soul-searching over this issue. I, I have no resistance to the idea that my life would have certain privileges that somebody else's wouldn't. I say that because I've spent time in developing countries. I've spent time in one of the poorest counties in Mississippi, which at that time was one of the poorest counties in the nation. And I've studied in the, in the education program that I went through at, at uh, Penn State University the many challenges that the inner city communities face in regard to education. And when I look at those things, I say there's no question that I have been blessed with many privileges. But I've just said a moment ago that the work of Christ elevates humility and gratitude while simultaneously extracting our sense of self-righteousness. So why does my heart naturally want to defend itself against the charge of privilege? Why am I pretty quick to remind myself, as I am, that I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth, which I didn't? I'm pretty quick to remind myself that I had to work my way through college, which I did, and I worked pretty hard to get through. I remind myself that I certainly didn't have as many privileges as many people that I know. So I'm asking the question, why does my heart do that? Why does it get defensive at that notion? Well, I, I want to share two reasons, and I think it does. Number one is just simply my pride. I, I kind of like the idea of meritocracy. <laughs> Chad was preaching against, but I, I kind of I like that idea in my, my old self. At least I'd like to think that I'm seen as a productive member of society, right? I mean, I prefer to think of myself as hardworking and doing my best. But among those maybe more noble reasons, I have to admit that some of the resistance or defensive posture is simply tied down to my own desire to be seen as valuable. Some of that resistance comes from my own pride. There's another reason that I think my, my heart gets defensive, and that is this, that accusation without redemption is no way to live. There's a lot of non-gospel responses to the sin of racism in our world. Some that would say that every person who has more must be an oppressor. And so my heart says, I don't want to be lumped in with that. I don't, don't, don't put that on me. Don't ask me to, to pay a penance without a sense of redemption. In fact, I, uh, I, I was thinking about the, the story of Sisyphus that was like the Greek mythology. Did anybody study that? So, so Sisyphus was this uh, king who was said to have cheated death twice. And so as a penance for having cheated death, he was, he was condemned to, I can't remember if it was a life or an eternity, but whatever it was, it wasn't good, of, of pushing a rock up a hill. And at the end of every day, when he would get to almost to the top of that hill, it would be brought down back to the bottom again. And I think that's what a lot of the Sisyphean type of efforts in our world to cure racial reconciliation do. They would simply say that you keep paying the penance, keep paying the penance, keep paying the penance. And then when somebody talks about privilege, my heart begins to get defensive because of that. 
Church, the good news is, though, this. The gospel gives us a way better response than our Sisyphean efforts never being enough. The gospel gives us more than defensiveness or apathy, which is what was being challenged in our message last week. And this is what it is. John 1, 16, when I get my heart in a, in a humble place, when I think about all that Christ has done for me, I can respond with a level of humility that doesn't need to defend itself. Because John 1, 16 tells me this, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From his fullness. And this is what Paul is getting at to the Corinthian church. He's saying, I want you to be aware of everything that you have in Christ. I want you to realize that your dependence as a person who is committed to reconciliation, a person who is called to be a minister of reconciliation, that you must depend on the finished work of Christ. And from that humble starting point, we can say John 1.16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And the gospel gives us this better option. You know what the better response actually is to the question of privilege? It's one of stewardship. Stewardship saying that we take whatever privileges we have and we lean into gospel work. That is why Pastor Chad said last week, we're not asking you to repent of privilege. We're asking you to just be aware of it so that you can be a more effective minister of the gospel. We receive the blessings that God has entrusted to us, whatever level they may be, and we steward them with God's kingdom in mind. The, listen, the gospel gives us better answers time and time and time again. And as a minister of God's reconciliation, we can embrace that with humility without building the defensive walls around our own heart. In this journey, I think I'm learning that I care less and less, by God's grace, about defending my position and more about simply saying, Jesus, what are you asking me to do in the realm of reconciliation? And that takes us into our third point. We have a mission to fulfill. Verse 20 says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. And maybe underline this verse 21, we'll come back to it in a minute. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, I want you to see this morning that the mission of reconciliation the reason that this subject is so important that we work through it, even when we disagree, even when we misunderstand each other, we stay committed to the big picture of Christ. Why? Because the mission of reconciliation is directly tied to our great commission. All of Jesus for all the world. All of Jesus for all the world. In fact, I, I want you to think about what mission there would even be without the ministry of reconciliation. You see, church, I believe that when God gets humble people where he wants them, good things begin to follow. Sweet repentance on a personal level. We begin to keep shorter accounts with God. We invite him to stir in us instead of running from the work that he wants to do. 
Sweet repentance on a personal level. Sweet repentance on a national level. You know, one of the big questions that I hear from people like me, white people that look like me, is, you know, why do you keep asking me to repent of the sins? I didn't do those things. You're talking about things that were happening generations before. I had no part of and I don't know what to do. Brothers and sisters, when God gets us to a humble place, we can have sweet repentance even on a national level. We can look scripturally at how that is done. Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah repents on behalf of his people and his forefathers for sins that he did not personally commit but needed God's forgiveness nonetheless. And in humility, he's able just to come before God and say, Lord, we need you. We need you in all of our broken places, all of our broken past, all of our broken present. Daniel 9, Daniel repents on behalf of his people and his forefathers for sins that he did not personally commit, but needed God's forgiveness nonetheless. And as I think about these scriptural examples, then God brings to my own heart, (laughs) aren't you glad that Jesus Christ, when addressing my sin and yours, did not adopt that posture. I'm saying, I didn't do that. But this is the agape love of God, that he who was without sin came in to pay for all of our sins, for all of our brokenness, for all of our past. We could see that in Romans 5 and get a very clear picture, but we don't even need to go over there because look at verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of There's something beautiful that happens when God gets humble people to the place where he wants them. And good things can follow. One of the sources that were put on our website, some videos that Phil Vischer put out over this last year. Yes, Phil Vischer from VeggieTales. Um, they're, they're actually really good. They're really informative, sort of talking about some some. Challenges with, with uh, white and black community and, and history and relations. And so, so I, I've kind of looked through those and, and appreciated those. One of the things that he talked about was the fact that if you have been given privilege, that you can use that not to be a savior to somebody with less, but to be an ally, to walk alongside. It's a Christ-like, humble position. It fits very much with the notion of weeping with those who weep and very much with the notion of repenting of things that we need to repent to. It's walking alongside So I started thinking about the question because this is kind of the big question. This is the seminal question that many people like me have asked. What are you asking me to do? Yes, I believe that the gospel is important. Yes, I believe that racism is wrong. What are you asking me to do? So I started thinking about this question of what does it mean to be an ally? What does it mean to walk alongside? What does it mean to be active? Showing my faith in my action. So I started thinking about examples where people that I know have, have used adoption and foster care to reach across sometimes racial, sometimes socioeconomic lines to take something that they had to become a blessing and maybe even a lifeline to someone else. I thought about folks who have, who have, have shared with me their, their stories of deliberately reaching out to coworkers of different races to say, help me understand your perspective. Help me understand how, and, and sometimes even just to say, how are you doing? Are you okay? And how friendships have blossomed from that. I've heard stories of advocacy on housing opportunities 
crossing, again, racial and socioeconomic lines. I've heard of, of folks who have, have really committed themselves for educational advancement, even using our great source of a university right next door to try to help people that perhaps would not have otherwise had opportunities. The reason I'm sharing these with you is that these are all examples that have come from within this church. These are all friends and family that I know from here. And I'm not saying that by any means to say, oh, we'll pat ourselves on the back. Look at that. We're pretty good. We're doing great. It's to say, let's celebrate the work that Christ is already doing, even as we lean into, with open hands, a desire to say, Jesus, make me a minister of your reconciliation. If the church doesn't go after it, the world isn't going to get it. I'm more and more convinced of that all the time. It doesn't mean we don't have good things in the world or good people trying to do good things in the world. It just we need divine intervention. And so let us be ministers of reconciliation. We have a mission to fulfill. So let me give you one last example of sort of how I'm kind of wrestling uh, in, this, in this season. So what do we do? As I've been kind of praying about that and, and thinking about, okay, well, Lord, what does it mean for us to, to be ministers of reconciliation in your world? Because most of us would probably say we've been at that place one time or another. We just said, I'm just not really quite sure what to do. So as I'm wrestling with that, I'm going to take you back again to Charleston, South Carolina, where we started this message. But we're going to go a lot farther back. Some of you who study the history of revival in the church will know that a significant thing happened in this country around 1858. As revival meetings swept major cities and the hearts of millions of people were stirred by the gospel of Christ. Now, how these things begin, it's oftentimes hard to tell, hard question to answer. But I was recently told about the Anson Street Presbyterian Church prayer meetings that began about a year before all of that season of revival took off. And this happened under the leadership of John Gerardo, who was a white pastor in a congregation that was mixed, actually majority black with some white believers as well. And they began praying together for a revival and for spiritual awakening in the country. Uh, in fact, they went so far as to put the preaching ministry on hold so that they could just simply wait on the Lord in prayer. Now that raises many questions in my mind as to whether or not perhaps part of the reason we're not hearing enough from the Lord is that we're talking too much. But we haven't figured all that out yet, so let me continue with the illustration. Weeks turned into months, and the congregation continued to wait in prayer. The pastor had made up his mind that he believed that God was going to show up at some point. He was going to stir the people in some way. And he said, when that happened, I had it in my mind that I would just go back to my normal preaching schedule. Well, when it happened, it hit him first. He said, it felt like an electric shock that knocked me on the head as the Holy Spirit began to show up in the middle of our prayer meeting and stir among us. And then as he looked up, he saw weeping and praying and raised black and white hands and realized that the Lord was stirring the small congregation was shaken, and as the people prayed and his hands were, were lifted, there was intercession going out, not just for their church, but for their community and for their world. Well, what happened next was that the next eight weeks uh, unfolded with, with literally months of the congregation continuing to wait in prayer. But in the next eight weeks, every congregation in the Charleston area grew 
as people were drawn to salvation through Jesus Christ. The ripple effect of that outpouring reached New York City where Jeremiah Lamphere, you may know that name, he began a meeting with six businessmen at the old North Dutch Church on Fulton Street. And from that moment, the great 1858 awakening hit the entire East Coast with over a million people committing their lives to Jesus Christ in the following year. I share that with you this morning Not because I have a great bead on God's timetable. I don't know why this particular church prayed for months instead of weeks or months instead of years. I don't know why God always shows up in the time and in the way that he decides to do. But I'm drawn back to seeing that as racial lines were crossed and as brothers and sisters from different walks of life came together under the banner of prayer, and simply saying, Jesus, we need you. That God did a stirring in this country that was undeniable. This is why we say when we get things right by God's grace, the enemy is afraid. A good friend of mine who's a colleague in in town, is African-American pastor, he, he shared that quote with me. He said, you know, Aaron, when we get this right, the enemy is afraid. When we get this right and when humble people are on their knees and waiting on the Lord, God does some good things. And this is why we don't lose hope even when our world feels so broken. So church... I would simply ask you today, if you would be humble to say, Lord, would you show me my place in your ministry of reconciliation? And I wonder if that simple and and fairly humble prayer might stir your heart, might, might even allow you to hold on through some of the disagreements, through some of the ways in which you might see things a little bit differently. But as we go after the big picture of Christ together, may the world take notice and may the world see fruit. Jesus, we're asking for your help today. As we wait on you, Lord, we wait with open hands, not sure exactly how you desire to move. Acknowledging, Jesus, that some of the challenges before us are just exponentially too large for us. And yet, Jesus, you are the great barrier breaker. You are the one who has already crossed the great divide, who has already reached out to us. It is because of your finished work that we can say yes in humble submission to you to say yes to be a part of the solution and so Father today I would just say maybe there's someone who just needs to receive a new commission a new identity in Christ Lord I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would stamp deeply on our heart You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. That you have a role to play in the ministry of reconciliation. So pray like you've never prayed before. 
Open your eyes to see your neighbors. Weep with those who weep. Repent where you need to. And buckle up and see the work that God wants to do. So Jesus, we cry out to you on behalf of our world. We cry out to you acknowledging our brokenness, acknowledging our need. I pray, Jesus, you would do a powerful work in us. I pray, Lord, that you would point us to the cross. I thank you, Jesus, that right now you are gathering worshipers before your throne from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every corner of this world. Father, we pray that we might be a part of that, a part of that mission. So as you are doing some new things, I pray, Lord, that we would be open to it. I pray that we would say yes to you. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.